Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. You know, Cameron, uh, I, I had a similar little uh, faux pas or, I don't know, my brain wasn't working this week whenever I was preparing my message, um, and Wade came by my office, and uh, he was like, you know, were, were you preaching this week? I said, Psalm 16, and he said, you know that you asked me to preach that a year ago, right? And I was like, I have no memory of this, but indeed it was true. I looked it up, and Wade preached a sermon on Psalm 16 a year ago, so this is the sequel. You get to hear another one on Psalm 16. Um, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm glad you all are with us. And we are taking a break just this week from the Gospel of Luke um, because next week, um, as we kind of after Labor Day, is when we just kick off our fall uh, ministry term. Um, so, what we're going to do next week uh, when we get back into the Gospel of Luke, the timing lines up to where we're at the Lord's Prayer. We'll do something a little different um, during this. We're going to break that. Uh, Lord's Prayer up into five petitions uh, that are there, and what we're going to do is break them up into five weeks, and each week will be focused on a different of the, one of the different petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and the thing that's really different is we're going to devote time in our gathering to gather up and pray together over these five petitions. So there will be uh, shorter uh, sermons uh, over the next five weeks, starting next week, and each of those five weeks will be a, um, a time where we'll gather together into groups and pray. Now, if you're thinking, well, what if I have a friend or what if a non-believer is here or whatever, it's like, we'll, we'll, we'll have that arranged. There will be uh, tools or a resource that can uh, hopefully help everybody at wherever they are in their, um, wherever they are spiritually, they'll be able to participate in a way that's meaningful for them at that place. So we'll try to do everything we can to make sure that... Um, People aren't, you know, put out or, or, or made to feel uncomfortable, uh, but it's good for us to pray together, and we've not really done anything like this before in any sort of sustained way. So five weeks, next five weeks, there will be an intense, more intensive focus on prayer based on the Lord's Prayer, and I'm super excited about it. I think it'll be a real refreshing time for us, so you can look forward to that. For today, we are going to be in Psalm 16, and this is a prayer of trust and hope and delighting in God and a prayer for God's protection in times of danger. So in this psalm is written by David, and David prays his way through his fears and joy as he contemplates his losses and his blessings. He even contemplates towards the end his own death. And he prays in hope that God will not abandon him, but will preserve him eternally. So uh, as his prayer concludes with a delight in God, it, it bubbles up to this beautiful expression. In verse 11, like the last verse in the psalm, is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Psalm 1611 is beautiful. Just this fullness of joy and eternal pleasure. Um, so this is a messianic psalm, uh, meaning that uh, it, it is used in the New Testament and referred to as uh, giving indicators of 
who the Messiah is. So it was written, you know, some thousand years or so before the time of Christ. But the, the language is used in reference to Christ by New Testament authors, particularly um, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. So this, this particular psalm, it's a prayer of David, written from his own experience, his own life, but it functions like a preview, in a way, of the life of Christ. And for us, this psalm teaches us how we can do what David did, which is pray our way through hard times so that we can find true joy and lasting pleasure in Christ alone. Because ultimately, Christ is the only source of joy. He is our ultimate joy. There's no lasting pleasure to be found anywhere else. All right? Well, let's dig in. Psalm chapter 16, or just Psalm 16. I guess you don't call them chapters. Just Psalm 16. I want to read the entire psalm, and then we'll go back through a verse at a time. Receive this as a prayer. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. This is God's word. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The word preserve, in the original, it means to, to keep or to watch over or to guard. So David opens his pr prayer, this psalm, it's a prayer of protection. It's a petition that God will keep him safe from danger. And if you know, much of David's life was spent on the run. I mean, he was always on the go uh, at various times in his life because he was facing dangers. And then he was exposed to various threats. And he learned through that time to seek refuge in God, that God is his safety. So in prayer, David fled to God, and he ran for shelter. He sought God, and he found safety, the safety that his soul needed to rest on his knees. And so Psalm 32, a different psalm, verse 7, it's another prayer. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So, does this mean 
that God is promising and David is believing that nothing bad will happen to him? Does this mean that life is always going to turn out David's way, the way he wants it? Of course not. We know that's not what he's saying. God doesn't make that promise, but God does promise his love, his protection, his goodness. That's what God promises. And so verse 2, you have the word Lord. It appears twice, but it's two different words in the original. So the first one you see, I say to the Lord, whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's the divine name. So it's Yahweh. It is the specific covenant name of God. But then the second time, it's capital L and the rest is lowercase. So when you see that, capital L and lowercase, it's a different word, which is Adonai. And that is not the covenant name. That is sort of a general name for God. So what David is saying is the God that I worship of all the gods that anybody might identify, my God, my Lord, in all caps, is Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who made his promise, the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of my people, the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, the living and true God, the God who created the universe with the word of his power, the one who holds the future in his hands, that's my God. That's the one I am seeking refuge in, not in some spiritual experience, not in some mystic experience, but in the covenant God who holds me in his care. That is who I am seeking refuge in. Now, in David's day, people worshiped all kinds of different gods, right? I mean, there was like, there was, it was a, a pantheon of various gods. You know, we see some of the names in the Bible like Baal and Molech and Chemosh and Ashtaroth and all these different names. But David's heart belonged to Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of the Bible. David was loyal to God, Yahweh God alone, God Almighty. And he says, I have no good apart from you. Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of the Bible, he is the source of everything that is good. He's the fountain He's the the standard. He's the one that defines what goodness even is. And because of God's covenant promise, David could say Yahweh is his possession. That's my God. My God. That's the God that I belong to. So David already has, he already possesses the highest good that there is. There isn't anything higher. What more could you want? What more could anyone want if they already have the creator, sovereign God of the covenant that loves us, that that is our shelter and our safety? What more could anybody want? David says, I have no good apart from you. If God is your treasure, if God is your possession, you've already got everything. So Psalm 73, verse 25 says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So David begins here with this this very clear acknowledgement and commitment that he is God's son. He is God's child. He belongs to God. Yahweh God. God is his. And there is no good outside of God. There's nothing 
pleasurable, nothing right, nothing true, nothing worthwhile that can be found outside of the God who defines those things by his own being. And this is a truth that Christians really need to cling to, especially in hard times or uncertain times. So listen, if if you're a Christian, if you're here this morning and you would say, I am a Christian, man or woman, what do you have? It means your sins are forgiven. Even though you are an enemy of God, even though you are a rebel, a wicked person, God rescued you, he brought you to himself, and through your faith in him, he calls you his son or his daughter. You are his, your sins are forgiven, you are adopted into his family, you are blessed by God, you are his beloved child. Together, as his people, we are his bride, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who we are, that's who you are, that's what you have. And our hope eternally is set on heavenly things, not earthly things. Heavenly times where we will reign with him forever as we are promised in the book of Revelation in a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we have. There's no good outside of that. And if you already have that, what other good could you want? What other good is worth pursuing or even desiring outside of what God has given us? But like spoiled children, we can easily grumble against God And in our hearts, despite all that he's given us, we could say, that's not enough. At the best you can do, God, that's not enough. I am dissatisfied. I am discontent. You've not done enough. You owe me more. That's an entitled spirit, isn't it? I see it in myself. It's a common thing to to be ungrateful for the good things that God has given us. We see in Psalm 16, I have no good apart from you. Do we believe that? David, while he's running for his life, with danger coming at him from every side, he's terrified and alone, and he prays, I have no good apart from you. Listen, God is the definition of good. His own being, his own character defines good. If you can find anything that is truly good without God as its source and reference point, then God is not God. God alone is everything. He alone is good. He's the source. And we have no good apart from him. So friends, watch out for a spirit of entitlement in your souls. I have to watch out for that in my soul. Watch out for that in your soul, a spirit of entitlement. We deserve nothing. We are only unworthy servants. And everything that we have, which is everything, we have God. But everything we have is an undeserved gift of a a gracious, merciful, loving, benevolent Father that lavishes us with every good blessing. So watch out for that spirit within us that grumbles against God. That spirit that treats him as though he's holding out on us. This, is that the best you can do kind of attitude? Watch out for that. Verse 3. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their sorrows shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. So David here is comparing two things. On the one hand, the saints of God, the holy ones, as some translations say, they are the excellent ones, the people of God. And he contrasts them with those who run after another God, whose sorrows shall multiply. They run after idols. So God's divine favor is upon whom? His people, right? God's divine favor, his covenant mercy and love is upon his saints, his people in the land, which at this time was referring to the land of Israel where God's covenant people dwelt. Now it's Christians who are, wherever they are. But the saints are the ones that are the recipients of God's divine favor. And he favors them not based upon their own merit or their own goodness or anything within them, but purely out of his gracious love. So we don't offer him anything. It's purely a gift of divine grace, freely given by our Father. And David calls them saints. The saints in the land, or holy ones, as you might have. Now, they are holy not because they're such fantastic, wonderful, godly people. Some of them are. But they're holy because God declares them to be holy because of his mercy. Ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but even at this time, uh, in the covenant itself purified and sanctified them uh, as holy, set them apart from the world. And they're contrasted with these other people that run after idols. The people that run after idols are people of the world. They don't love the Lord. They, they don't know God as their covenant God. And they're following false, fake gods, idols, following them, believing them to be their, their safety or refuge. or They're looking to these idols for good things. And they're false. They're fake. They're not real. They're not the true God. And because of this, there is a sorrowfulness that multiplies because they're living in darkness. They're living apart from God. So David's delight then is in the saints, the people that are brothers and sisters of this covenant, children of God. He delights in his people as their king, the way a father would delight in his own children. It's this delighting in his people. Now, I want you to notice the sequence here. And this, this sequence is, is a pretty consistent theme throughout the Bible. But the sequence is, it begins with God and then moves to his people, but always in that order. It's always, it always begins with God. David's ultimate good is God alone, right? God is the source of all good. He is the reference point. He is the refuge and shelter. And then it moves from the ultimacy of God into delighting in the saints. That's the people of God. That's secondary. That's, that's, that's where God's heart is, but God is ultimate. God always has to be kept ultimate. And so he delights in, delights in the saints of God, and David's love for them is, is the outflow of his love for God, of his, of his delight in God himself. And so David's loves are ordered properly. It doesn't begin with people, and, and, and relationships with people determine 
what our love for God is like. No, it starts with God. It starts with his word, his truth, his character, his goodness, his being, and that determines for us how we interact with and love one another. His loves are ordered in the right way. His love for God is the reference point that determines his love for people. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the Good Samaritan text. But this is the Ten Commandments, first four commandments, love God. Second, or the last six commandments are love for neighbor. Uh, the lawyer questioned Jesus on this, and there was, his answer was love God, love people. But always in that order, always in that order. And so it's important that we get the sequence right. And the principle essentially is God before man. God comes first. Our, our ultimate allegiance has to be to God first because our love for God is the controlling interest. Now, verse 5, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion. Remember that from last week? The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So if you are here last week, we talked about God being our chosen portion. And that's what Mary chose. You know, Martha was busy serving, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. And Jesus said, Mary chose the good portion. Maybe Psalm 16 is in view there, because there's no good apart from God. And then here we see, the Lord is my chosen portion. But there's this food metaphor that that reminds us that as a portion of food sustains the body, God is our ultimate portion that uh, sustains our soul. That is, we look to God to meet our ultimate needs for sustenance and nourishment. And then there's this talk about lines. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. The lines he's talking about here refer to the boundary lines that would have existed in the Old, in the, you know, the Old Testament times in the nation of Israel. There were, there were lines that would that would determine what the allotment of land was to the different tribes. And then within there, there'd be boundary lines of individual property. So the boundary lines were marked out an individual person's plot of land. And then also, um, you know, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll get these, it's almost like uh, these measurements, you know, it's like from this town to that town and over by this river and next to that tree, you know, it's kind of telling you where the different lines are. It's saying, here's what land belongs to you. It's God's land. The land belongs to God, but God is going to lend this land to you that you can work it. And so that's your inheritance that you receive from God. And so whenever God draws the boundary line, he is telling them that's, what, that's what's theirs. So a boundary line, when God draws a boundary line, um, well, I'm jumping ahead here. God drew up the boundary line for the different people, and they were given to the, all tribes of Israel, but there was one tribe that didn't get an allotment of land. You all know who that is? The Levites, right. The Levites did not get an allotment of land. Do you know why? Because they're the priestly tribe, and the scriptures, God told them that the Lord is your inheritance. You don't get a plot of land. Rather, you receive the tithes of all the other 11 tribes. And those tithes will come into the house of God. And then God's inheritance for you will be to, for that tithe money to 
to sustain you, but you don't get an allotment of land. And so there was this interdependence, like they represented God and God's people um, supported them. And so this, this boundary that, that David is referring to here, now David was not from the tribe of Levi, he was from the tribe of Judah, but he is speaking like a Levite. He's speaking like a Levite because he says, like, I'm like, my heart is like one of the Levites, where, where God is my boundary. God, God is my inheritance. It's like I, the, the, the boundary lines don't matter as much as God himself being my inheritance. And so he's, he's, he's referring to this, this idea where uh, he sees God as the portion. That's, that is where his heart is. And so he's picking up this idea and praying like a priest, saying, the Lord is my portion. The Lord holds my lot. The allotment of land that I would have given, is, is that, that's secondary to God himself being my portion and my, my lot. And because the Lord is my portion, then my lot is pleasant. It's a good lot. If you go out and survey your land, you're like, that's a good lot. Yeah, I like this lot. David's looking at his life and saying, what is, my, what is the, my lot in life? That's where that expression comes from. What is my lot in life? This is my portion. My portion is God. It's a pleasant lot. If you have God, then you've got a pleasant lot. You have a good lot in life. And his inheritance is beautiful. And that's even when, even though the circumstances of his life are scary, he's learned to be content. He's not complaining about it. He's accepted his lot. So here's the thing. Boundary lines in our lives are like God's yes and God's no. And sometimes God tells us yes, and sometimes God tells us no. God says, no, that's not your lot. That's your neighbor's lot. God doesn't give you that lot. That's your other neighbor's lot. Here is your lot. I don't like this lot. doesn't matter. This is your inheritance. The Lord gave you that lot. So the lines in your life are God's yeses for you and God's no's for you. God, I don't like the way you made me. I don't like the, the talents and gifts that I have. I don't like uh, the job that I have. I don't like the kids that I have or whatever you think. It's like, I you might think, like, I don't like something about my life. And God says, that this is what God has given you. Don't have a heart of envy that looks at somebody else's lot and says, I would rather have their lot. No, God's boundary lines are pleasant because the Lord is your inheritance. You already have all the good that you could ever handle. And then some. Some left over. So God's no and God's yes are good for us. God gives us good boundary lines because he's a good father and he loves us. So whenever God draws a boundary line where you want him to, then you can rejoice with gratitude. Thank you, God. I praise you for the good blessings you've given me. And when God draws a boundary line where you don't want him to, you can still have gratitude and thanksgiving and praise in your heart because the Lord himself is ultimately your portion and your cup. You already have all the good you could ever need or want. So this, this is a discipline for us to remember because there's all, always going to be times when we're faced with something we don't want. This is not the way I want it to work out. God's no is for our good. If God tells you no, then God is not mistreating you. Whenever God tells you no, it's for your good. God's no is a boundary line. 
and what you have in your life, that is a lot that he has given you. And God has drawn a line around and said, this is what I have for you. And it's a pleasant inheritance. It's a pleasant lot. It's good. And you can, you can acknowledge that and give thanks for that, knowing in your heart that you already possess the greatest good that there is. If God says, I love you, I am yours and you are mine, here's what I have for you, then you already have more good than you can handle. Of course, we have to have the faith and trust in him to receive it that way. But that's what it is. You have a beautiful inheritance. You can have a contented heart and pray with gratitude. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And whenever life is hard, whenever you're feeling pain, whenever things aren't going your way, that's always going to be a test of faith. Do you believe what's true? Do you believe the promise of God? Do you believe what his word says is good? And that's where you'll have to settle it in your heart. And it's, it's an emotional discipline. It's not just, I believe in the truth of Scripture, God is Trinity, three in one. I believe the Bible is... No, no, no. I'm talking about a faith that is operative at the, the level where we live, where we feel, where we desire. At that level. Is God really enough for you? Is God really your only good? Do you truly believe that God's no is good? Can you accept God's no and say, I have a beautiful inheritance? I can accept what God has given me and what God has not given me and say it's good. It's pleasant. It's beautiful because I already have more good than I can handle because I have God. If you settle it in your heart, that having God, being his child, is the ultimate good, and there's no good apart from him, then you can handle a lot in life. And by lot, I mean much. <laughs> you can handle a lot of things not going the way you want it to because your, your heart is anchored secure in what is real. There's some discontented uh, folks in the room right now. <laughs> I want to eat. I don't want to eat now. I'm hungry. <laughs> but we can rest in his refuge and be satisfied. So these are the truths that our hearts need to believe, especially whenever we feel weak and discouraged and defeated. All right, verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So David blesses God here. Who gives him? He calls it counsel. And the counsel is, is a divine counsel. Now, when I, when I speak of, of God giving counsel, he's, he's not talking, he says like my heart gives me counsel. He's talking about a scripture-saturated heart, not just I'm following my heart, whatever my feelings may say. He's talking about a Bible-saturated heart, a heart that is, that is committed to God's law. I want to read to you um, a section from Psalm 119 to show you the kind of heart that is giving him counsel. Now, David didn't write this psalm, but this psalm reflects uh, his commitment. So this is Psalm 119. Just listen, and listen to the, the attitude and spirit of, uh, of this psalmist towards the law. 
Psalm 118, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. That's David's heart. And when David says his heart instructs him in the night, that's the heart. When his anxious thoughts assailed him late at night, and he'd lie in bed, worried about the next thing, anxious, awake, his scripture-saturated heart gave him instruction and taught him to align himself with God's word. I'm not a big follow-your-heart guy. Is it, you, know, you might have figured that out by now. I'm not a big guy that says follow your heart. Because what that usually means is follow your emotions, your sinful desires, your, your fickle, weak faith. And we all do that. It's like follow your heart usually means give in to the worst parts of yourself. But here what he's referring to is, is a heart that is filled with scripture. In, in our natural state, apart from this this heart-level commitment to God's word. Our hearts can deceive us because we can be sinful and twisted. And the key is to instruct your heart, to fill your heart up with God's word so that you, you can speak truth to your heart and you can, you can listen to something wise because your heart is filled with truth. So if your heart is set on God and his word, then your heart can give you some good counsel because it's aligned with God's heart. And so in verse 8, David, he says, My, uh, I, I set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That's what he's talking about here. The Lord is always before me. God is always the reference point. All his instruments were calibrated by God's law. Because God's law was his standard. God's law was David's true north. It was always pointed in that direction. And David always kept the Lord in front of him, fixing his eyes and his mind on God, not wavering away from him. And as a result, he says in verse 8, I shall not be shaken. I'm strong, I'm resolute, I'm steadfast. He's grounded in a reality that is eternal because God, the eternal God has spoken it. He knows what's real because he's read it in God's word, his law, and he's filled his heart with it. So he's not tossed here and there, to and fro. And in all the Old Testament stories of David's life, that's the one thing that just amazes me. It always stands out to me is that his, his, his zeal for God, he's got this passion where God is always, he's always thinking about how do I honor God? And I think of how little that drives me. But David, his, his passion, his zeal, his the fire in his belly was, I want to honor God. And his zeal for the Lord drove him. Now, obviously, he's far from perfect. And we see 
There are some really ugly stories of things David did in the Bible. He sinned in huge ways. But the, the, the overall theme of his life was that he strove to be a man after God's own heart. Because his loyalty, his commitment, his focus was God. And that's, that's a great goal for every Christian. To, to say, I want to set God always in front of me. So no matter what you do, no matter what decision you make, whatever you're thinking about, it's like you're thinking like, what honors Christ? What is glorifying to God? How can I act in a way that honors God? And if you're, the more your heart is filled with scripture and you're humbly in submission to it, the more you can listen to your heart. And the more that zeal for God will come out in your life. Because when your heart is aligned with God's heart, You're grounded. You're not shaken. He's the beginning and the end and all things in the middle. He's everything all at once. So you can face anything with a confidence and hope that God is my refuge. I'm going to be okay. I will not be shaken. I have no good apart from him. He is my portion. He holds my lot. My inheritance in him is beautiful. I want to follow him hard. I want to give him everything. Final verses. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is hopeful. This is hopeful. His heart is brimming with gladness. Remember where we started? Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. But now he's just overflowing with this joy. I will not be shaken. He's this this hopeful optimism, his gladness, his whole being rejoices. He trusts that his flesh will dwell secure. I mean, he's talking about his physical life there. His flesh will dwell secure. He's thinking like, whatever I face, I can trust God. It's going to be okay. God's got this. It's going to be okay. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Even if I die and I end up in Sheol because I'm buried and I've gone to the realm of dead, it's going to be okay. Because God won't abandon me there. Because my eternal destiny is in his hands. It's going to be okay. I think sometimes we just need need to tell ourselves that it's going to be okay. In the Old Testament mindset, Sheol, it's like we hear that and we think, oh, that must mean hell. Flames and judgment and all that. Like That's not exactly what they meant. Sheol generally referred to the realm of the dead. And there was a place in Sheol where... The damned, the eternal dead, those that are under judgment would, uh, would suffer punishment. But just the mindset that they had was that this was generally the place of the dead. And God, David thought, well, if I, if I die and I'm buried, I'm in the underworld because I'm buried. But even in the grave, God won't abandon me there. And he says this thing about being, facing uh, corruption. You will, not let your, or you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, obviously, David died. And when he died, his body decomposed. 
So his body saw corruption. So was David wrong? Of course not, because God did not abandon him there, and David awaits the, eternal, uh, the, the final resurrection when Christ returns. And so the New Testament authors saw this text as a messianic uh, promise where Christ himself did not see corruption because he was raised from the dead. And his resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection of all humanity. So David was setting his hope on something beyond his own life and experience. He did not write this psalm thinking that he was going to physically live forever. He wrote this knowing that his eternal destiny, which we get there at the end of verse 11, his eternal destiny is, is, uh, is, is secure in God. So Jesus Christ, he is the true holy one. And he was dead for three days. So he's dead long enough to be for sure dead. He's not mostly dead, he's all dead. Three days. If you're dead for three days, you're all dead. But he wasn't dead for three months or three years because that would be decomp decomposition. He wasn't dead that long. He's like, he did not see corruption, but God raised him bodily, physically. And in that hope that David referred to here, that, is the, that was seen as, as an anticipation in Psalm 16 of the resurrection of Christ, who literally, the Holy One, the, the ultimate Holy One, did not see corruption. The one who was not abandoned in the grave, but God physically brought him out of the grave. And that is our hope of a resurrection life. Say it another way, Jesus was raised just in time, just in time. And the words of Psalm 16 understood this prophetically and applied it to Christ. Now, verse 11, he says, you make known to me the path of life. In the ESV study Bible, um, there's this note that says the path of life is a master metaphor in the Bible. Because Christianity is a way of life. It's, it's not just a head religion. It's not just a heart religion. It is a way. Like we say, no love and obey. It's like the obey part. That is a way. It's, it's a way to live in addition to what we believe and what we love. But it is a way, and it's a path. So Matthew 7, 14, Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It's a path. Christian discipleship is a path, and it's a narrow path we see in, we see in the New Testament. So it's a way of being in the world where we trust God with how he's running things day by day, moment by moment accepting the lot that he has given to us, receiving him by faith as the ultimate good, where we, we keep him right in front of us, right before our eyes, where he is our focus, and we walk this path in the hope of the gospel, which includes our daily repentance and faith and growing on this path in Christ's likeness, and walking this path with God always before us, that's how we experience his presence where there's fullness of joy. So this sentence, in your presence there is fullness of joy. This is off script here. I used to be Pentecostal for a few years. And uh, Pentecostal, that's the uh, speaking in tongues, raising, I, you know this, slain in the spirit. I was part of that church for a good while. And in the presence of God, the thinking there was like, oh, whenever we get together and we sing songs and everybody gets kind of excited, that's the presence of God. And the fullness of joy that we experience is when everybody gets kind of worked up and starts running around and singing and praying and having a good time. And I miss it. I mean, I, I mean, I, that really it was, it was a, um, I'm not knocking it. Um, there was something really special about that. 
But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about a mystical experience where we walk into a church service and God's presence is felt in this mystical way. No, the presence of God is on the path. It's a lot less exciting if you're looking for some hype, some religious hype to fire you up. That's not what he's talking about. It's that as you walk on this path, God is walking with you. He's walking before you, in front of you. He's walking behind you, protecting you. He's your hiding place. He surrounds you with shouts of deliverance. That's his presence, and it's on the path. The normal Christian life, ordinary, daily, routine, that's the presence of God. It's not nearly as exciting, but it's faithful. It honors God, who is your portion. That's where there's fullness of joy. And what you find over time is like there is a peace and a contentment there. In the ordinary Christian life, pleasures. It's more simple than we think because it's so ordinary. But this is Christianity, folks. Ordinary faithfulness. And this is the path that Jesus walked in his earthly ministry. Step by step, his entire earthly life and ministry, Jesus walked this path of life. Jesus took refuge in God. He prayed, Father, save me from this hour as he was facing the cross because he looked to the Father for comfort and safety in his time of need. But Jesus also accepted his lot. He prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. That was his lot. He accepted it. Jesus delighted in the saints. That's why he came. He told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. He loved his people. He came to rescue a people, a bride. Jesus was not abandoned in the grave. He faced the horrors of the cross and death, even burial in a tomb. And the confident hope that God would not abandon him there. That God would raise him in victory on the third day. And Jesus experienced the fullness of joy and obedience to Father as he walked the path. Hebrews 12. So Jesus did all this. He faced the suffering and death of the cross because of the what said before him. Anybody know? The joy, that's right. Because of the joy set before him. Can you imagine that? Gethsemane as he's praying. What got him through that was the anticipation of a greater joy that awaited him on the other side. So he walked the path, he led the way. Friends, let's follow in his steps. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, thank you for all your promises. Thank you for the experience of David in the way that he suffered and that you taught him through his suffering a way that we can follow you. You teach us, Lord, how to put our hope in you. You promise us that there is no good. There is no good apart from you. Lord, there are so many here, I'm sure, today that are having to deal with a painful lot, suffering, physical ailment, a sick friend or their own sickness, 
any number of things that are hard. Lord, help them to receive the lot as from your hand, knowing that you are a good father and you've drawn the boundary line just where it needs to be for their good. And Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us to walk the path of life. That we will enjoy your presence by faith surrounding us on every side with hope and trust and confidence that we will dwell secure, our flesh will dwell secure, that you will not abandon us. Even as we face death, you tell us in Psalm 23, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will not abandon us there. You will deliver us. Lord, I pray that in all of our hearts, each one of us this morning, those of us that are your children that believe in the truth of the gospel, whisper in our hearts by your spirit, it's going to be okay. Help us to believe that. And we thank you, Jesus, that by your death and resurrection, you made it okay. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.